a little bit before uh, we get into the passage this morning, a little bit of introductions. Romans chapter 6. I could spend Easter morning kind of once again explaining to you the accuracy of the historical record of the resurrection of Jesus, the 500 eyewitnesses that saw him alive after the the 11 had seen him. Remember, Judas had betrayed him, and actually Judas had committed suicide. He hung himself, and so the 11 saw him alive. And I could go into the history and the eyewitnesses, and we could go into the prophecies about Jesus not just dying, or not just being born of a virgin, not just dying, but then rising again. And we could do all of those various things. We could even talk about the fact, you already know it, that if Jesus did not rise from the dead, then everything else we do would be meaningless. Because that would have made him a liar. Because he said he was going to rise from the dead. And if he said something and it didn't happen, he would be a a liar or a lunatic, as as I believe C.S. Lewis says. So I could talk about any one of those things for Easter. um, But this morning, I I knew uh, ahead of time what I was going to talk about which is not typical for me. I I enjoy, we go through the Bible verse by verse and chapter by chapter, so every week I know exactly where I'm going to preach from the next week, and it makes it really easy for me. Because when we have these special services, Christmas or Easter or a special type of service, there's like 66 great books, you know, in the Bible. And I'm like, where do I start? I'm like Mr. Indecisive. You know, I could, is it this passage, is that passage? But I sat at the soup kitchen not this past Friday, but the previous Friday. And I had one of those conversations. Uh, met a, a girl there. I'd mentioned her in, in a, a different Bible study here. I, I won't use her name, so she remains anonymous, because my hope is still that she'll end up uh, coming here and seeking the Lord. But I met her, and I had never met her before. I think it was her first time there at the soup kitchen in Charlottesville. And uh, we got to talking. And you could see, you know, sometimes you see be- behind people's eyes. You just see, you can read a lot about a person in their eyes. And I just looked into her eyes, and you could see a lot of pain. And the piercings in her body that were all self-inflicted, which, oh, I couldn't do that. Um, But she had, you know, piercings here and piercings there, and all of them she had done. So clearly had dealt with, you know, pain in her life and and tattoos that she had tattooed on herself. And as we got to talking, uh, she barely made any eye, I mean, couldn't even make eye contact with me. Maybe you've had a conversation like that, where the person... Just whether it's shame or whatever it is that's going on inside, there's no eye contact. And she began to just tell me a little bit about what she was going through and the struggles she had, how her mom had uh, sold her into uh, prostitution, how she had gotten involved in drugs, and she'd been in and out of rehab, and, you know, it never worked because then she'd go right back to living. You know, she'd go to rehab, she'd get off drugs, then she'd go right back to where she was living before, and she'd fall right back in. The same people, the dealers would come around, and then she would get into dealing and in and out of jail, and and you know the story. And as she was telling me these things, you know, the the little tears began to come out of her eyes. And then what do you say? What do you say? Because you say, well, you know, how about church? And you know, that's filled with a lot of background, isn't it? When you say to someone, how about church? Because they said, well, I've been there. And I, I didn't, you know, people looked at me cross. I was judged. Nobody said, you know, I was looked down. And so there's a lot of pain even there. Like, yeah, right. You know, I've tried church. And that didn't work for me. I didn't get any, any help. I didn't get any real help there. And so I just sat across from her just praying on, Lord, what do I, what, you know, what do I have 
to offer this girl. You know, I was like, wow, you need a miracle. You need, what you need is a new life. But you don't need the same kind of life. You need a new and a different life. But then the Lord convicted me further, which is always great when the Lord does that, that I had been approaching her as if somehow she was different than me. And I realized that, Steve, you needed a miracle just as much as she did. And she, and she, and she does. And, and I was like, oh, okay, Lord. So and I just knew as I talked to her that Romans 6 was where we needed to be this, this Easter morning. Specifically talking about our connection with Christ and, and then this, this thing that's described as the newness of life. Buried with him in baptism. We say it when we have baptism ceremonies. Buried with him in baptism. Raised to walk in what? Newness of life. So Romans chapter 6 was the clear place for me because this woman was still fresh and is still fresh in my mind. And my prayer for her, my hope for her, I know that the psychologists couldn't help her. Doctors couldn't help her. There's no one else that's been able to help her. The only hope she has, the only hope I had, the only hope anybody truly has is Christ coming into their life. And, and we amen, and that sounds great, but what in the world does that mean? I mean, I'm a nuts and bolts guy, and I remember sitting in church years ago, and the pastor was saying, it's all about, you know, being one with Christ, and it's all about Christ being, you know, in you. And I said, well, I'm not sh- sure I know what that means. So today I hope that you'll leave understanding that it, it's your, your life, is not about church per se. Church should and will become part of your life in Christ. But the church, just showing up to church or just reading your Bible, those things are powerless unless you have been joined to Christ. And I hope you leave with a better understanding of that this morning. So Romans is a book about the grace of God. If you want to sum up Romans in three words, grace of God. And and in Romans, everybody on the face of the earth, whether you don't know God or don't know Christ, or whether you've been a morally good person, or whether you grew up as a Jew and you had the Bible and you had all of God's laws and you had this worship of God, it doesn't matter who you are, everyone is guilty of breaking the laws of God. Everybody. And so everyone, no matter if you're a drug addict from the soup kitchen or a CEO of a big company, where, the, as they say, the, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. Everybody comes on equal terms, no matter what you've done in the past, no matter how good you think you've been, all of those things. We all agree with the law of God. We all agree with the moral law. We all agree that murder is bad and stealing is bad and we're supposed to love each other. The problem isn't whether we agree with it or not. The problem is whether we're able to do it. And the answer is that we're not able to. So we all come equally to the foot of the cross and, and all... All have sinned, the Bible says, and fallen short of the glory of God. And so Paul then brings in this understanding that we're not saved then by doing good. You couldn't be saved by doing good because you can't consistently do good. We all look at our lives, and if you're honest with yourself, you say, well, I've done some good, which wouldn't fly if you were with the judge at the Palmyra courthouse, and you were there on a charge, and you said, well, I've done some good. Well, we're not here to try you for the good you've done. I've never been pulled over for being a good driver. I've never honked at someone in the circle for understanding what a yield sign really did mean. 
We get pulled over when we break the law. And if we're honest with ourselves, we recognize that when we really understand what God's law says, we realize what it does is expose us just how far off we really are. When we have that moment of honesty with ourselves, we say, you know what? Um, I really should treat people better than I should. I'm really much more self-centered than I should be. I should think about others more. I, I shouldn't say the things I say about other people when they're not around and when they're not listening. So we, we recognize that. And I'm in the same boat with you guys. And Paul recognizes that. And God knew that. So God made another way through his grace that people wouldn't be saved by their works, by the things they do. They'd be saved by what God has done. But the challenge is, is to connect us to what God has done. Right? So God did it over here, but I'm over here. And how is that connection made between me and God? So if you're in Romans 6, I'm going to read the passage. And, And before I read it, we're going to go down a number of verses. I'm not going to go through this verse by verse this morning because I'm not going to preach quite as long as I normally do. Normally, we're like three hours, but uh, <laughs> today, just two. No, I'm just, so I'm going to try to break these things down because I know maybe some of you haven't ever been to church and haven't ever heard these things before, so I really want to present these things in a simple and understandable way. So I'm going to kind of try to categorize my way through Romans 6, rather than a strict verse-by-verse Bible teaching. So here's what you, as we go through, I want you to look for a few things as we read through. Number one, I want you to notice the, the number of times that the word dead, death, or died is in this passage. I'll tell you ahead of time, you don't have to count, but you'll notice how frequent it is, 14 times in, I think, 11 verses. 14 times in 11 verses, Paul uses the words dead, died, or death. Seven times in those same 11 verses, Paul uses the word live, life, or alive. And then you can include on that, tack on to the end of that, once the word resurrection. And then three times the word know or knowing. So there's something we are to know about death and life. How's that for simple? I don't know what it is yet. We're going to find out. But there's something in this passage, if we judge by the frequency of the words, there's something we're supposed to know about death and life. All right. So let's read verse 1 of chapter 6. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And and let me just pause right there for just a second. This is sort of an introduction. All that Paul has been saying about grace and about being saved by grace, the big question is, If you tell people that they're not saved by their good behavior, that they're saved by the grace of God, then what you are doing, and and actually if you say that not only they saved by their good works or by the grace of God and not by their good works, but actually that the worse that they are, the more God's grace is elevated. I mean, the worse sinner you are when God can save, if God can save the worst of the worst, that just shows how much his grace is able, how huge his grace is. So if I'm a bad dude and God saves me, that shows his grace, then wouldn't it make sense to be, if we continue to live in sin, won't that just make God's grace more glorious? So Paul could be accused of preaching a gospel that encourages people to continue to live in a sinful life. I mean, after all, Paul, how can you tell people 
that they're not saved by their works, what's going to constrain their behavior? What's going to make them behave? So Paul, if you're saying that God's grace is so great, and even though we were, we were dead in, in our sins and we died with Adam back in the garden, then, and through Jesus we're alive, then isn't that going to promote a continually sinful life? And he says in verse 2, certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ, Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, and pay close attention to that, we're going to start there when I finally end reading, For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we also shall live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sins once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So pretty lengthy passage, and some of you are going, what in the world does all of that mumbo-jumbo mean? Well, I hope you can answer that question when we leave. So the first place I want to draw your attention is verse 5. Because there's a lot of language in this passage that has to do with uh, joining together or being together. For instance, I underline in my Bible, verse 4 says we were buried with him. Verse 6 says we were crucified with him. And verse 8 says we died with him. And then also says live with him. So there's a lot of with hymns. Can we agree on that? There's a lot of with hymns. And that just means doing something together. So we were with him in these different places. And then we'll ask, well, when were we with him in those places? Be careful, I'll get to that. So that's one place. Another place where we see a lot of together language is the word baptized. Baptized. And for them, baptism meant an identification with. When you got baptized, and and Christians aren't the only ones to practice baptism. Other religions practice baptism Uh, So baptism signifies a death to the previous life and a starting of a new life. And that's typically a general symbol for baptism. And in the Bible, there are two words, Greek words, that can be translated baptized. And this one is the word baptizo, which doesn't make any sense to you unless you know the other one is the word bapto and that they have two different meanings. Okay, well, what do they mean? Interestingly, again, there was an ancient Greek poet and physician who uh, lived around 200 B.C. and happened to uh, leave a record of how to make pickles. How cool is that? So somehow they found this document. This guy wrote some letters or a journal or wherever they found it. And in his journal, he had a recipe for making pickles. And that recipe happens to include both words for baptism, bapto and baptizo. So here's the difference. He would say in his recipe that in order to make a pickle, the vegetable should first be dipped, and that's bapto, in boiling water. Okay, so you've got, you got to open up those pores, right? You dip it in boiling water, 
and then it should be baptized or baptizo in vinegar solution. So the first baptism is a temp, bapto is just a temporary um, placing under this hot water. But the second one is an immersion in a solution that then comes into the fabric of the vegetable and changes its nature. We don't even call it a cucumber anymore. It, we change its name. We now call it a pickle. So there's two, that's, and that second word, immersion, that, that actually produces a change is the word here for baptizo. So there's this, again, it's sort of together language. So there's with him, there's baptized. We see twice, I think the word is uh, baptized is used, baptism into death. And these things are uh, going to make sense as we carry this through. But here's the real one I wanted to get to. Look at verse 5. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death. United together. Now that's an interesting word. Maybe some of your Bibles have the word joined together. Does anybody's Bible say joined? Or maybe if it's a King James, maybe the King James has planted together. The word united together is only used one time in the whole New Testament. It's a Greek word, only used one time, and it's right here. And here's what it means. Born together with, of joint origin, implanted by birth or nature, grown together, united with, kindred, closely entwined, or united with. Because when we say joined, like I can join the gym. But that has one meaning that means, you know, I'm kind of, I'm part of this thing, but, you know, I'm a member. But that, none of these things really give the picture of what it means to be joined to Christ. So I want to introduce you guys in just a moment, Bradley, if you're ready back there with the, with the pictures. I, I've got some pictures I want to show you guys because I want to leave you. I'm a very visual guy. Anybody else here visual learner? Like you can read it to me a thousand times and I won't get it. My reading comprehension isn't great. But if you show me a picture, I've got it. So maybe you'll benefit from my learning disability. In just a second, uh, I'm going to introduce you to Abigail and Brittany Hensel. Abigail and Brittany uh, will serve as our illustration for what it means to be joined to Christ. Because I want to point your, your attention to this word congenital, or of joint origin, born together with, or congenital. Maybe you have a congenital issue, a congenital heart problem. It means it was something you were born with, right? And you grew up then with this as part of your life. But you can also talk about congenital twins, or conjoined twins, who really grow up together. Now, I have twin sisters. They're 17 years younger than me. They're fraternal twins, so they don't even look alike. They were born together a couple minutes apart, but they don't look alike. Uh, They're good friends, but they look nothing alike. Then some of you um, might understand there's not fraternal twins, but there's the twins that that look exactly alike. And so they're, they're twins. They're born together, and they even look the same. But that's not what we're talking about. One out of every approximately 200,000 births are conjoined or congenital twins. When we talk about them being born together, if you pull up uh, the two girls, Abigail and Brittany, when we talk about being born together and growing up together, uh, they can really say that they were born together. And, it's, and I know it's kind of hard to look at, but there's a few other pictures. These guys, uh, these girls, have a life together. Uh, go to the next frame. They have friends and they travel. Next picture. They drive. And notice I'm not using a singular word. I'm not use, I'm not, you can't say, although they share one body, 
and many of the same organs they have in common, they are really sort of, are they two people or are they one person? And you go, I'm not really, I mean, they're, I think they're two people, but they sort of have one body, so they drive, and what else do they do? Again, they just go shopping, have friends. One more. Graduated college together, or graduated high school together. I put that in there because of the, the saying at the bottom, joined for life. Joined for life. Because what would happen if you tried to separate them? One would die. And I just, just as I read that, I was reminded what Jesus said in John 15. I am the vine, you are the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And when we talk about us sharing the life of Christ, we are dependent. And it's for that very reason, because of our being united together with Christ. And so with those pictures fresh in your head, uh, I, I want to explain, see, when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus didn't say, I'm going to show you the way or point you the way. When he says, I am the way, Paul recognizes, and we need to recognize, that we have been joined together with Christ. That is what's necessary in our life. We say, when, when did I die with Christ? And when did I live with Christ? Well, you died with Christ when you believed by faith. And you, then God took you back 2,000 years ago, or 1,900, whatever Warren quoted, took you back to that cross when Jesus hung on that cross. And he conjoined you to Jesus Christ. So when Jesus was hanging on the cross, who was hanging there with him? I was. I mean, right there with him. So when he died, could I possibly live, have lived without him? When he died, what happened to me? I died. When he was buried in the grave, who was with him? And here's the good news. When he rose again, who was with him? When he reigns in his kingdom, who's going to be with him? When he comes back on horses, who's going to be with him? There I am, hanging on the side, you know? I'm with him. I mean, just that's it. I'm with him. So you can't, this is a miracle. I'm not saying I understand it, but this is God's economy. God understands a corporate identity. So I was thinking about this, you know, when, if, when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, uh, I was thinking about our trip to Nepal and how we, we took a plane, how, you know, a couple hundred people, I think 300 on this plane, we get on a plane and we go, we fly over to Nepal. But it's a bad example because there's other ways besides a plane to get to Nepal. So I need a better illustration. So I thought about the moon. Far as I can tell, there's only one way to get to the moon. It's by a rocket. And you can't, so I can explain to you how to get, you can come here, we can do studies on engineering and propulsion and gravitational forces, and we can do studies on that, and we can become experts in how to get to the moon or what it takes to get to the moon and all the science involved with that. But you will never get to the moon unless you are in a rocket. And you are, and then I can't, I can even give you directions to the moon, you know, go up. <laughs> I give you directions. But just because you know how to get there doesn't mean you can get there. Just because you know doesn't mean you, because there has to be another force active in your life 
to be the way for you, you need a rocket. You need something outside of yourself to get. So when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me, that means, hey, I'm going to the Father, and you're either joined with me or you're not with me. Those that are joined with me, conjoined to me, will go. And those that won't, aren't, won't. This is why marriage becomes the greatest example of Christ in the church in the Bible. Because we say about marriage, to become one. Could we have a better example than those slides of two being one? This multiple singularity? It's, it's hard for us to comprehend, and that's why pictures are so powerful. And that's what happened to me with Christ. And even in chapter 7, Paul uses marriage as another example of, I was just like a husband and wife were joined, I was married to Christ. When I got saved, when I placed my trust in him, when I accepted him to be my Lord and Savior, God said, okay, that's what I needed you to do. You believe. Now here's what I'm going to do for you. It's a miracle. I am going to connect you personally, miraculously, with Jesus Christ. That's what he did for me. And that's what's life-changing. See, the same grace that takes care of your sins when you died to your sins, died to that old sinful life, that same grace is the same grace that guarantees you a new life. Why? Because you're joined to Christ. You can't be joined to him in crucifixion and separated from him in resurrection. And the true example, the true proof of a Christian life is, is just that, new life. And that's what I like about this. If you go with me then, now not verse 4 or verse 5, but go back one verse to verse 4. Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death. So for Paul, everything is about our identity with Christ and the miracle of God letting us and identifying us with Christ. Now, let me give you one more example and we'll finish that verse. Think about the Old Testament book um, where, where we see David fighting against Goliath. We all know the story, right? And the background of, of this illustration is in Romans 5, Paul set up this truth that we are all sinners, those that, because we sin because we are connected to Adam, the first sinner. He gave us our nature, so we do what's natural for us. When we walk apart from God or separate from God or we do our selfish thing, uh, we are just doing what, our, what we did naturally from Adam, the first man who sinned. So one man blew it for everybody. Every, some people call that the Adam bomb. Adam really bombed out, and we have all suffered the fallout of that for centuries. And the proof of that is even before there was law given, even before the Ten Commandments, people were dying. Adam died, and Seth died, and all the way through the Bible, people are dying, even hundreds of years before the law is ever given. And death is proof that sin exists, because sin brings death. That, because people die, that's, that's the proof that sin exists, even before there's rules. The rules just demonstrate to us the fact that it's there, and, and it exists. And then we say, well, oh, you know, now I see my sin. So the question is, why, if one man blew it for everybody, then how, does, how can one man represent a whole group of people? How can Adam represent me, and how can Adam pass that on to me. And then how can Christ then 
undo everything that Adam did? How can he undo the atom bomb? And, and we find our answer an illustration of that of David and Goliath. Now remember, when they fought, they were a lot smarter than us. They had much fewer casualties than we do in war. Why? Because they chose one representative from each side. Who's the biggest, baddest dude on our team? And we're going to put him against the biggest, baddest dude on your team. And we are, we are represented by him. You are represented by him. Those two battle it out. And the one who wins, wins for their whole team. You know how that works. How many of you have a team? Oh, you have a team. I don't know what your football team is. I don't know if you're UVA fans or Virginia Tech fans or what kind of fans you are, but you have a team. And so when your team plays, you go to work the, work the next day and they say, how'd, you, how'd your team do last night? Ah, we lost. What do you mean we lost? You never took a hit. You never caught a single ball. We lost. See, you, have, you understand it in theory, what it means to identify with someone who then represents you. And David and Goliath each represented their sides. And so when David won, he was their champion. And, and because he won, the whole nation won. See, being born again, and when we're born again, conjoined to Christ, he is then, he doesn't just die for us, but he died as our representative with me in him. I mean, it's a hard truth to understand, but that's true. And so when he died, that gets, I, I get connected to that when I'm saved, and that's represented then by our baptism. That's what he says here, back to verse 4. Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death. That just as Christ was raised from the, raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. One more big point, and we'll finish for the morning. It's your, your life in Christ is as certain as your forgiveness of sins in his death. And this word newness, I love spring because you've, we, all winter we've been looking at the darkness and the barrenness. Many people go through a seasonal depression. Winter's just a depressing time. The days are shorter. The plants are bare. Everything just looks dead. But in the spring, you, you feel life start to surge back and you start to see new life on the trees. And, and you see the buds come out and the flowers come out and it's just like, oh, new life. And I love that God has done that. But it doesn't give you a picture of what happens for Easter. It doesn't give you a picture of what happens in your life. Why? Because the new life is the same life that came out last year. It's the same tree. The apple tree, it's going to die over the winter. All the leaves will fall off. There'll be no fruit. It'll be barren. But then the spring... The leaves come back on, the buds come out, summertime, the apples start to grow. Why? Because it's still an apple tree. And that's one type of new. There's two words for new in the, in, the, in the Greek language. One of those is neos, which means new meaning just having started, not, not having existed long. But this word is a different Greek word, and it means a new quality of life, a new kind of life. In other words, a new life that you get, not from the same tree coming back to life again, but that a new set of roots gives a new tree. So if you could do a root graft to that tree, that new roots, what's in that root is that life of the tree. And a no, new, so this is a new quality of life. My old life, you see, you'd have looked at me and you said, well, Steve's a pretty good person. 
I mean, everything that outwardly, I had a job, I wasn't a drug addict, I, I, didn't, I didn't, wasn't subject to a lot of those things. Uh, you know, I was fairly functional, came from a fairly functional family. My parents loved me. I, did, I didn't have a horrible background. I was a sinner, trust me. I was a sinner. But, because some people say, well, why do I need a new life? I mean, new life sounds great for him or for that girl at the soup kitchen or for that guy who's in prison. They might need a new life, but I'm pretty good. I just need a little help here and there. And, and that's the danger of that kind of thinking. I just, I'm really, I'm doing okay. I just need a little help in this place or that place. You either have life with God or life without God. And my good life, God never crossed my mind. Never came, I never entered into my thoughts, never entered into my actions. I was living a good life, and we're, we are misguided if we tell people you can never have a good life without God. People have good, li- people have good lives without God. I mean, you know, we understand that good earthly lives, no spiritual life without God. There's no eternal life without God. But you ask them, and you'd well, you need a new life. Well, I, you know, we had an exchange student from Germany and, and tried to explain to her that she, you know, needed a new life. So why? I got a pretty good life. You know, I'm going to college, got a happy family, you know, I, I do what I want. I mean, I'm pretty happy. So that line of reasoning doesn't work. You've got to discard that because people will look at you and say, I got a pretty good life. Why do I need a new life? The problem isn't whether you have a good life. The problem is whether you have a godly life. That's the question. Do you have a godly life? Meaning, is your life connected to God or separated from God? That's the issue. And when, see, my old life was connected to sin. Sin called the shots in my life. Paul even goes on to say, and, and I'm not going to do this as much as I had hoped to, but if you look down uh, toward the bottom of the passage, if you still have your Bibles open, for the death that he died, verse 10, he died to sin once for all. We'll come back to that. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Um, Backing up just a few sentences, look at verse 8. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing, this is one of those things you have to know, that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. And look again, verse 10, the death he died, he died to sin once for all. That death and, and, our, and our union with him in that death died to sinful life, not specific sins, not dying to alcohol or dying to drugs or dying to gossip or dying to pride. It's sin as a general way of operating in your life, of, of being a master or a slave to the master of sin. Sin called the shots. I had no other voice in my head. I had no other life to draw from. I was separated from God. I had, actually, I was conjoined to sin. If you want to use the picture, uh, I was conjoined to sin. But what God did is he separated that. When, he, when, that, when that person died, I died to sin. And now Paul says, sin no longer has to call the shots in your life. Oh, it will. Sin will, but now I'm, if you would pull that last slide up once more, but now I have been joined to Christ. That's a miracle. No religious laws, no religious routines can do that. The Christian life is a life of the power of God. And see, if I'm joined to Christ, if Christ goes shopping, where do I go? 
I'm shopping. I mean, because I'm joined to him. If he is at the soup kitchen serving the poor, where am I? If he is uh, opening his home to, to those in need, if he is sitting at a table with tax collectors and sinners, where am I? You see what I'm saying? If he is washing the feet of his disciples, where am I? Washing feet. If he's a servant, where am I? I mean, you picture him in any scenario you want and then picture yourself conjoined to him. But that's something that we have to reckon in our lives. We have to know that this is how God has designed it and know that sin still wants to call the shots, but I don't have to listen anymore. And if I try to listen, I got to fight with Christ to do it. Because now that is natural. That's what I'm, that is the natural way of being. I have to, there's one, I, I watched way too many videos on twins um, last night. But one video was two girls joined at the head. They actually share brain matter. And they, the, the mom was talking about how when she found that out and how they, you know, the, the struggle it was. And, and then the, the girls were like four or five years old. And, uh, and they're, they're, they're getting around, walking sideways. But the challenge really came when they didn't agree on what to do. And that's when they would fight with each other. And one would reach over and scratch the other one. And they're kids like any other kids. But when you're like that and you want to go in a different direction, it's really a challenge, isn't it? And that's why as a Christian, if you've truly been saved and God has come through the Holy Spirit, Christ has taken up residence in your life, then you will not find it easy to sin anymore. That's one of those big changes because you will have a new quality of life, a life where God is at the center, a life where everything that that, uh, that you do now revolves the natural, the natural way of being is worshiping God. That's natural. That becomes natural. So as we close, and I invite the, the praise team to come up, um, you know, it's a natural day for me to offer you the invitation that God offers you to be joined to him. When you join yourself to him, there are great, there's great benefits from joining the gym. But the greatest benefits in the world are from joining, being joined to Christ. What do I get when I join him? I get, he gets my sin on the cross. I get his righteousness. If Christ was perfect, then what am I? Perfect. I'm joined 2,000 years ago to the sinless Savior who died on a cross, taking the penalty for my sins with me hanging there with him. And I get resurrection. I get his life. I get glory. I get the gifts of God. I get eternal life. All of that stuff comes from one source. Do you know when Kate Middleton married into the royal family in England? There was a lot of benefits to that. She got a whole bunch by joining in marriage to that family. Did she work for any of it? She, the right guy fell in love with her. What do you say to that? Praise the Lord, right? Well, guess what? The right guy fell in love with you. The right guy fell in love with you. And he has loved you from the foundations of the earth. And he doesn't want to live another day without you. He wants to, he's been, maybe you've been separated from him. And he has longed to be reconnected to you. So that, not because he needs you but because he knows you need him. And you can try to fix the symptoms. And you can try to address the problems. 
but you've got to get to the root. There is no other answer for you. I'm sorry to tell you this. There is no other real answer for you than Christ and being joined to him. And you don't have to wait till tomorrow. You don't have to wait till next week. You can do that today because how does it happen? By faith. By faith. Because the, the death he died, he died once for all. So, you know, here's the scary thing about what happens because we say we are the body of Christ. I mean, now all this language makes more sense when you see that picture. We're the body of Christ. Unfortunately, there's Christ with about a million, more than millions of us stuck to him. Because when we become one with him, and you become one with him, and you become one with him, guess who else you become one with? Me. (laughs) Welcome to the family. Scary but true. Scary but true. So if you're, if you're here this morning and, and you just know that you know that you know that there are no other answers and there's no other hope for the girl at the soup kitchen, there's no other hope for me, um, that you, if you really say, you know, I need a new kind of life. I can't just live the new life. Keep starting over with the old life. I need a new kind of life. I need a life connected with God. Then I want to invite you as we stand and sing and, and we let's stand and sing then maybe um, you were invited by a friend, a relative. I don't know what the situation is, but I'm going to invite you to take a really bold step this morning and and come down here and say, I want to be joined to Christ. I want that miracle to take place in my life. And, And maybe you've been in church for 20 years. And maybe today's the day you'll really get joined to Christ. So if someone's with you, just grab their hand and say, you want to go down? Yeah, I want to go down. Well, I'll go with you. Someone come and stand with you. And maybe nobody comes, or maybe you come afterwards. That happens a lot too. I was too embarrassed. Whatever the case is, I don't care. It's not about walking down an aisle. It's about faith in God and being joined to him. Amen? Amen. So I'll be down here. If you want to come down and talk about the Lord, please come down. We'll pray with you, and we'll be excited about your new birth. Amen? Amen. Let's praise the Lord.